1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about Spycast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spy org. That's spycast at spy org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make Spycast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Mark Stout and Chris Moran, two friends of the museum that you've heard here before on SpyCast. Mark Stout, who's my immediate predecessor here at the Spy Museum, our third historian, previously worked for 21 years in the national security community, including 13 years as an intelligence analyst for the State Department and then CIA. He's now Director of the Master's Degree Program in Global Security Studies and also Director of the Graduate Certificate in Intelligence, both at Johns Hopkins University's Kruger School of Arts and Sciences, Advanced Academic Programs here in Washington, D.C. Chris Moran is an associate professor of U.S. national security at the University of Warwick in England. He's the author of several books, including Classified, Secrecy in the State in Modern Britain, and Company Confessions, Secrets Memoirs in the CIA. Mark and Chris are both editors and contributors to the new book Spy Chiefs, a two-volume set that examines the role and impact of heads of intelligence in the United States, United Kingdom, and then even Renaissance Venice to the Soviet Union, Germany, India, Egypt, and Lebanon in the 20th century. So, Mark and Chris, welcome, and thank you for joining us here on Spycast. Happy to be here. Good, good to be here. So, it won't be hard to kind of pick up on the differences between the two. It's always difficult when there's multiple guests, but uh, the, the strong uh, British accent is Mark, of course, and Chris <laughs> speaks like he's from Alabama. No, um, so let me let me start. Is this book's a while in the making, uh, books don't magically, unless your name is James Comey, they don't magically pop up in a couple months, uh, that has been festering for a little while. So what, what was the inspiration for putting a book together? I mean, I mean, what is there, 20 some odd contributors to this book from all over the world? So
2: what brought all this to fruition? Sure. So the the, 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 original intellectual launch pad for, for the two volumes was, it was a panel put together by Dr. Paul Madrell from Loughborough University in the United Kingdom at the 2014 Annual Convention of the International Studies Association in Toronto on intelligence leadership. Um, Simultaneously with that panel, similar ideas have been kicking around uh, Warwick University, where I'm based, along with my my longtime friend, colleague and mentor, Professor Richard Aldrich. Um, Specifically, we were looking more at leadership more generally of intelligence organizations, not just spy chiefs, but also presidents and prime ministers. So we all got our heads together. Uh, We we were delighted to welcome on board um, Mark Mark Stout, but also... um, Dr. Ioanni Ordanu from Oxford Brooks University who's a who's a specialist on on leadership from an organizational uh, slash business management perspective. Um, so we came up with this concept of of studying the uh, the spy chief the intelligence leader and we quickly realized that there is a that, 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 that there, is a com- there is a common narrative or common representation of the spy chief as perpetuated by the media and as perpetuated by, uh, by, by Hollywood and popular culture. And that really is that uh, the spy chief is all-knowing and all-powerful. So we thought, uh, for the sake of the historical record, we really should try and, 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 and test this. Uh, so from that original concept, we then proceeded with with some questions in mind uh, How powerful is the spy chief? Um, How secretive have spy chiefs been? How do spy chiefs differ in different national... Uh, international and, and institutional and historical context. Does the spy chief of 2018 in one country look like the spy chief from 1650 in another in, in another country? So with all this in mind, we, 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 we all of us put together uh, a conference in, in Venice in, in May of 2014. We had, had over 40 or 50 participants, all talking about intelligence leaders from, from, from different countries around around the globe. And then four years later, by hook or by crook, these two volumes materialize. So what, I mean, you've talked a couple things, but what really
1: ties this book together was on face, you look at it and it looks almost like it's just a series of vignettes on intelligence leadership, because like you mentioned, from hundreds of years apart, from around the world, from countries that are as developed as the United States, UK and Russia, but also ones that are developing. uh, So are there common themes? Are there things that bring this book together and make it more than just a bunch of chapters with an introduction and a conclusion tacked on.
3: Yeah, I, I'd say I think the two volumes have slightly different emphases in that regard. So the first volume uh, on U.S. and U.K., uh, which I should say I'm, I was much more involved in than volume two, uh, really is looking at these questions that Chris is talking about. Um, and I suppose if you had to just sort of put it into one sentence, was really sort of trying to examine this notion that spy chiefs are secret and powerful, American and British spy chiefs are secret and powerful and operating behind the scenes to make things look not as you know, be not as they seem, right? Um, Volume two certainly has aspects of that, a lot of aspects of that, Um, but also it's looking at um, sort of the question of are spy chiefs in democracies the same as spy chiefs in communist countries and are those the same as spy chiefs in authoritarian, you know, like military dictatorships? Um, Short answer being no. Uh, but those are, I think, how we would sort of uh, uh, characterize the the two themes of, of these books, and um, and we had great fun doing it. It's, it's it's rough work going to a conference in Vienna in Venice rather to uh, well, Vienna. <laughs> right, too, you didn't but put in Hoboken. <laughs> <It> was, uh...
1: <laughs> so can we, since you guys were the ones that put a lot of this together, you had to read everyone's. So you you, it's not like you just wrote your article and then never looked at anything else. You have the big kind of thirty thousand foot view of this broader question. So are there identifiable qualities that make for a good intelligence leader from, you know, the, the foundation of this, this study? I, I,
2: I, I can't speak so much for volume two. So Dr. Paul Madrell is, is, is really the, uh, the, the, the big thinker behind that one. But in terms of volume one, so making the comparisons between UK spy chiefs and, and um, US spy chiefs, I think one of the, one of the core... Themes of, of 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 the volume is that the spy chief in 2018 in the 21st century has to be public, has to be visible, uh, has to try and sell the intelligence mission um, to a skeptical Congress, to a skeptical Parliament, to an often to, to, to a public that is often inherently distrustful of, of intelligence activity, and that the spy chief, I think we would wage our proposition, is, pl- plays a huge role now in trying to shape and influence those public misunderstandings in many cases uh, about intelligence work, and they, they really have to perform this role, because if, if an intelligence agency has a bad image... Um, morale at that particular organisation will, will 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 be low, and then efficiency will 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 suffer. But also, appropriation uh, appropriations committee on who you know all organisations rely. You know, these are the people that write the checks. Appropriation committees will be a little bit nervous about signing those checks. Uh, also, history teaches us teaches us that when intelligence agencies have a bad corporate image. Um, You often get a lot of sort of vexing legal restrictions imposed on the agencies that that can influence their day-to-day practice. So it's really important, therefore, in in 2018 for spy chiefs to get out there and talk in very broad brushstrokes, only broad brushstrokes, not talking granular detail that, you know, causes problems for sources and methods, but gives very broad brushstrokes about what intelligence agencies do.
3: Yeah, so I I guess to just summarize that and then make an additional point, I mean, I think... If I had to sum up what, what Chris was talking about, openness to the public, is, you know, we asked this question in in volume one, you know, how secret are U.S. and U.K. spy chiefs really? And I think you could say the answer is um, they're um, they're less secret than they w- used to be, but they're probably still more secret than they should be uh, for the strategic health of the intelligence services, which exist to serve these, you know, serve their, their nations. Um, uh, you know, and and the and um, you know the other thing that the or one of the other things that really comes out of this strongly too is a, a good intelligence leader is somebody who knows how to tend relationships in all directions, right? So it's really important, obviously, if you're a if you're an intelligence leader, an agency head, or whatever, to be able to work well and be responsive to uh, your boss, to speak truth to power, but also sort of um, you know be useful to the to the boss in a in a non-politicized sort of way. So typically, presidents mm-hmm. are, and and. and and, and and cabinet secretaries, that sort of thing, um, but also you have to be able to work with your peers, uh, other agency heads, and other you know entities in the government. Um, you know, uh, any number of DC uh, directors of Central Intelligence here in the United States have had all sorts of difficulties because they couldn't necessarily get on with the Secretary of Defense, right? Who has a much 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 bigger budget than right. they do, just by the way. Um, And you need to be able to uh, work with and develop positive relationships with the people below you. And it's a rare beast who can do all of these, but any one of those um, not dealt with properly, not tended to properly, um, and you know the entire tenure of the leader could be you know down the drain. I mean, they could they could fail in the broadest sense, you know, on any of those points of the compass, and that's a rare person who can do that.
1: I'm interested to see if in 15 20 years there's a volume three to this where it investigates the relationship of the now the DCIA with the DNI. And yeah, how, because that we haven't really had enough time or, or to really understand, and certainly we haven't had enough hardcore full-fledged DNIs Mm. you know you've got Clapper and then everybody else was kind of a I mean briefly yeah. everybody else was brief um and that relationship's interesting I mean you look at the Pompeo Coates relationship which was strained um that's my side but I I, let me go back to something that both both of you talked about uh especially you Chris talking about the idea of needing to be public and needing Mm. to understand this public thing and and I originally wanted to ask you like can this analysis of what makes a good leader be predictive? Can we look at someone who now happenstance happens to be nominated to be director of CIA? Somebody who, when Gina Haspel's name was first brought up, if you googled her, there wasn't a picture of her online, right? There, there. It, it, that is not someone who's ever lived yeah. publicly. She's had a very undercover kind of be
2: Pictures of people in orange jumpsuits. Sure. Yeah.
1: Right. So, so does that. Translate. I mean, is that you said that is absolutely necessary in 2018 for someone to be mm-hmm. public and be willing, not giving up sources and methods, but to be willing to have that public conversation. Uh, is this is this something that you think
2: is going to be problematic? I, I'm a firm believer in 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 a measured degree of, of openness for the purposes of of ameliorating public understanding of, of intelligence issues. You know, let me just repeat here: I'm I'm not proposing that spy chiefs bear the secrets of the company I'm not proposing that they they you know they they hawk secrets like they would um, or hawk them for profit w- what I'm suggesting is targeted messages to prevent falsehoods and conspiracy theories hardening into fact uh, I'm proposing targeted messages to um, to, to ensure that the the, the, the the appropriations keep rolling in and, and actually I think you know the the, 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 the openness initiatives that countries on both sides, sides of the Atlantic over the last 20 or 30 years have, have, have done. So in the United Kingdom, we've had official histories, official authorised histories of MI5 and MI6. We've seen a lot more public appearances by spy chiefs. What, one of, the, one of the, the, the lessons from all of this is the world has not caved in. All of those concerns that the hard and cold warriors had in the 70s and 80s had about opening up a little bit was that, wow, we we, we give the public a little bit, their appetite will grow with with, 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 with the eating, and suddenly we'll be giving everything away. Great. Agents' names will be all over the front pages of The Guardian. Uh, intelligence will just cease to be. Well, well, that hasn't happened. Those sort of truly cataclysmic predictions about, you know... Yeah end-of-the-world intelligence scenarios haven't happened, measured degrees of openness, I think, I think are important. I,
3: I think also that we, we speculate in this book, and I actually think it may have been you, Chris, who, who's proposed this idea originally. Uh, I'm, I'm not certain of this at this point. It's been a long time. But we propose the idea it's, it's truly just a hypothesis, but that people who are leaders who are grown within the organization, as Gina Haswell has been, um, may have a little more difficulty when they reach the top job of having this uh, degree of openness and this ability to deal with the public and the press in a, in a more or less, a, you know, we like to use the word translucent sort of way, because right up until then, you know, um, they've been, you know, had it beaten into them that you don't talk to the public, you don't talk to the press. You know, in the U.S. you get polygraphics every five years, a good hunk of which is about whether you know any reporters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the United Kingdom, uh, they don't typically do polygraphs, as I uh, understand it, but you get to sign the truly draconian Official Secrets Act that basically says, if you hint at anything ever, you're going to jail, the right? Officer, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, and this is, this is beaten into you, and it, I, I, we have to imagine, though this is not something we've investigated systematically, but we have to imagine that that affects you, right? You can't just turn off, you know, 30 years of instinct. Um, when you become the CIA director or the NSA director or the head of of, uh, of, of MI6 or the,
2: whatever. This isn't just an academic hypothesis on, on our behalf. You know, the, the notion that um, image matters and, and public education matters is actually something that even the most hardened... Secretive agencies get now, and, and probably the best illustration of this is is GCHQ, arguably the last great bastion of, of absolute secrecy. In 2014, right off the bat, of um, off the back of the Edward Snowden revelations, um, allegations of mass surveillance, all that sort of stuff. Who did who did GCHQ appoint as its as its director? Did it appoint um, a 30-year intelligence veteran? No. It appointed, in, it appointed instead Robert Hannigan, a PR guy who has no experience of in the intelligence business whatsoever. Uh, Robert Hannigan had been Tony Blair's Director of Communications in, in Northern Ireland. I think that was just such a. That appointment was completely testament to the fact that intelligence agencies, even ones as secretive as GCHQ, now recognize that, that they operate in a brave new world where a, where a measure of openness is an important part of their business.
3: Which is an amazing evolution, considering that the British government didn't even admit that GCHQ existed until 1994. I mean, obviously, anybody who had the slightest interest knew, but officially speaking, mm. you know, wasn't any such thing. Or, you know, compared to William Casey at the CIA, so Reagan's um, first uh, and, and very long-lasting CIA director, right, who wanted a um, not a low-profile agency, but a no-profile agency. Mm right? Just can't get there from here these days and you shouldn't try.
2: And we'll go along to congressional oversight hearings, you know, with his marble mouth. Just right. M- sort of m- Mumbling. Of mumble. mumbling. Yes. <laughs> <He's decipherably. laughs> Almost certainly to disguise, you know, the statements he was looking to make. Let me ask you a really wonky process question. I do that when I can't ask right. uh, answer questions. Yeah, Hopefully I can stump you on I'll this pull one. Out my casey. Let me
1: ask you a really wonky uh, process question. We've all done extensive research uh, in intelligence archives. I wonder, look at the spy chief. Spy chiefs even they don't know everything going on at their agency, right? There are certain things that don't reach to the level. There's a lot of moving parts that they can't be following on a day-to-day basis. So you think the historical record's influenced by directors taking responsibility for what their agency does without their knowledge, essentially the whole the buck stops here philosophy, where we may not know wh- what their real role was in some of these like covert operations or other things. Uh because all the record tells us is what they've done kind of after the fact to say, yep, I'm in charge, I'm responsible, that's me.
2: Hmm. Well, first of all, you, you you wouldn't want an intelligence leader to know everything. That would not be practical. I think that, that there's a little bit of a, of a misconception about what a leader in, in an intelligence context actually is and what it actually means. So an intelligence leader is not a manager. It's not a manager. Uh, in other words, he, he or she is not someone who should oversee every process and every procedure at every level nor is the spy chief in, in uh, the leader in, in an intelligence context a commander in a military sense uh, save a few occasions it is not their job to issue uh, orders in moments in, in great urgent moments of, of crisis I would I would put to you uh, and this is where my co- uh, my colleague dr. Juanani who has got some good interventions I would put to you that it's the job of the intelligence leader to ask the right questions. Their job is to ask the right questions that they then empower their followers to, 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 to answer. But it is absolutely not, in, not in, in, in the spy chief's interest or the organization that they oversee to, for that person to know everything. Um, compartmentalization of knowledge is very important. If you have one person knowing everything, then they can actually be the one person that can give everything away. <laughs> then is it
1: fair to judge intelligence
3: directors by what happens during their tenure? Well, I mean, uh, at some level you have to, otherwise you have no accountability whatsoever. Um, on the other hand, um, what is, uh, I don't quite know how to put this, but what um, is necessary from a public policy and, and accountability uh, point of view that yes, ultimately, you know, the box has to stop with the with the agency chief uh, who was responsible, uh, quote unquote, um, that you, that should not be understood as meaning that realistically or, or you know, let alone whether it's a good idea, realistically, agency heads are going to know, it, in fact, everything that's going on in their agency. Um, the, even, you know, the relatively small intelligence agencies are pretty darn large. Um, and have a lot of stuff going on, and when you get to you know the big ones, right, like NSA for instance, mm-hmm. I mean the the really big daddy, um, you know, it's incredibly far flung, right? And in any large bureaucracy, um, you're going to have ill advised things going on, you're going to have unauthorized things going on, and you're going to have things going on that look like a good idea at the time that the you know that the the, the chief knew maybe knew all about, uh, but you know. Don't work out so well so I think there's a difference between as a practical matter whether you know specific living human being really should be understand to be you know sort of morally responsible and whether in a political or accountability kind of sense they uh, should be held responsible they're not necessarily I think um, uh, the same thing but agency chiefs and I think you've got a, a story about uh, some of the Watergate burglars right yeah. can inherit all sorts of like you know uh, I think you've called them landmines that uh, you know they they, they 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 don't know are coming along and, and suddenly now like I'm the director on the spot, I have to deal with this. Uh. Yeah. So a lot of
2: directors that come in from the outside. So they're political appointees, they haven't necessarily climbed the escarpments. They will join an agency and will quickly realize that there are landmines existing beneath their feet. So one that, that 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 either did or could go off at any moment. So one, you know, fairly good example of this is is CIA director James Schlesinger. So he was appointed by Richard Nixon in early seventy three. Um with, with basically the, the the objective to go and kick ass at the agency, Nixon's suspicion was that the agency was completely out of control and wasn't producing good um, assessments that, that he needed. Um, Slesinger soon discovers as DCI that two of the Watergate burglars had in their, in, in, in their history worked for the CIA. He also discovers that those two Watergate burglars had received technical assistance, assistance from the agency in their, their running of dirty tricks operations in the Nixon White House. He learns these two priceless details, not from his underlings and subordinates at the CIA, but from the front pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times. Suddenly, PR storm uh, breaks out, and who who takes the blame for that? James Schlesinger. And, of course, that, that little story is what what triggered him to um, to send that directive. It was actually penned by, by William Colby, but it was ordered by Schlesinger, who, the, the Family Jewels mm-hmm. directive. He was the one who said, I want to know what other landmines exist beneath my feet. A few weeks later, 700 pages of alleged infractions and violations are put on his desk. And then when that's leaked in December 1974, I think, by Cy Hirsch in the New York Times, suddenly a landmine goes off for his successor, successor William Colby.
3: And and you should also not necessarily assume that all of the subordinates in an agency um, necessarily desire to share everything they're doing. Uh, with the chief because <clears throat> You know that implies giving the chief some, some degree of control that they may not Wish to give up um, so my chapter on uh, John Grombach uh, gets gets into this To some degree but a, a better example because it's Bigger and, and, and fundamentally ultimately More important is that the national security agency Where for decades right so a very Large agency does highly technical Stuff has frequently been headed by NSA directors who did not have a background In signals intelligence right who are Very smart men so far they've all been Men very smart men all of them um But gosh, you know, you can get lost in understanding SIGINT really quickly, right? Right. Um, But NSA for decades was sort of divided up into these sort of technical fiefdoms, right? Presided over by... uh, 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 senior executives, um, sort of second-tier executives in NSA who were who were called um, the warlords, who had precisely zero de- desire to give you know any hmm. director of NSA any significant control over what I'm doing in my. So you just right, these are just, the technocrats, right? These yes. are the people that actually understood the technology, Te- turf-conscious yeah. technocrats. So yeah. you just go over there yeah. in the executive suite, Mr. Director, yeah. and you just don't <laughs> worry your pretty little head about what I'm doing here. Please, thank you very much. Uh, right, uh, and just, and one could readily imagine that whether it's you know <clears throat> whether it's uh, you know, uh, malfeasance or just things not going well—that wow. there could be all kinds of things hidden down below mm-hmm. there uh, that an NSA director might or might not ever know about, but will and should ultimately be held
2: responsible for it, if it, something happens. It wouldn't necessarily. So, one of the lessons from the Schlesinger period: it's not necessarily in the best interests of a newly appointed spy chief to go in and immediately say, "I want to know all the bad stuff that's going on in this organization." Uh, you don't necessarily want to start on that foot. You know, immediately you've put noses out of joints, immediately you've got a bloody nose, immediately your workforce don't trust you. So that's a real delicate one, actually, for any incoming um, director of, of the CIA, any incoming director of NSA. You want, to know where the skelet- you want to know where the bodies are buried, but you need to know in a way that- In due course. <laughs> in, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that certainly, if you're coming in from the outside,
1: that's a different perspective than if you buried some of the bodies yourself. Yes, you're, certainly. You're I'm not making, I'm not casting aspersions on anyone in particular. Literally, I'm not trying to. <laughs> uh, but that's an interesting. I mean, do you do you guys look at that at all? I mean, you've mentioned it a couple times now mm-hmm. of the people brought in from the outside versus those that have worked their way up. Have you have you noticed maybe it's not in the book, but have you noticed any differences between the homegrown? Because right, point. you know, think of John Brennan who worked his way or an analyst versus an operations person. I, I'm writing volume three
3: for you right now, right? right <laughs> you know people Because who, we're going to make so much money on volume place. one and two do we, that there's going to be an undeniable demand for volume three. George your yes. University Press is going to be like, where is
2: volume
0: three? Uh,
3: I mean,
1: have you noticed any differences there? I mean, we now have kind of the Brennan tenure ended, you know, a year and a half ago or so, and he was really the last... Um, American CIA director that came kind of from the system itself and then bring in Pompeo, who was an outsider to yeah. intelligence almost yeah. completely.
3: Well, we haven't looked at that in a systematic sort of way, but I do in all seriousness agree that that would be something I think interesting and 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 useful to look at and may well do that. Um, but I would say that um, as important as that factor probably is. There's so many others that can either facilitate success or lead to failure um, that it, it might be hard to tease that out, right? I mean, so um, so uh, an, an agency head who has, who maybe, you know, comes from the outside, um, but has a very good working relationship with, you know, the president, uh, for instance, um, is probably in a better position than an agency head who sort of uh, uh, bubbles, you know, comes up through the ranks and sort of knows, knows the precise levers within an agency, but, um, you know, maybe doesn't have a relationship with the president. So um, uh, there's a lot of things yeah. in place. a lot I of moving parts I here. I might
2: have a, um, be able to, to, to flush that one out. I think if you look at the two volumes as a whole and, and, and some of the spy chiefs who have been outsiders and, and who've come in, um, I think my proposition would be they often have a very good vision. They often have a very good vision for what an intelligence agency should be doing and what it should look like, but they have a bad strategy for implementing that vision. So one obvious example that springs to mind is Admiral Stansfield-Turner, so he's brought in as Jimmy Carter's DCI in 77. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sound like a Turner apologist here, but what the hell, uh, I think he has a pretty good vision for what the CIA should look like in the modern era. He wants to do some house cleaning. He wants to clear out some of the, the, the cowboys, the Good Shepherd generation of intelligence officers, the swashbucklers that have got the agency into trouble. Uh, he wants to install more analysts, more thinkers at the CIA. He also wants to um, give more headway to young officers who want to be promoted, uh, whose path to promotion has been historically blocked by senior aging uh, senior officers. Um, and he also wants to see a little bit more technical collection being done, because he, he genuinely has a heartfelt desire not to put assets and agents in harm's way, intelligence is a very you know, difficult business. So the vision is great, I think, in in, in Turner's case, but the strategy for, for implementing that was absolutely terrible. He arrived at the CIA, brought with him his real kind of military personality, uh, forces background to what's fundamenta- fundamentally a civilian organization, immediately started putting noses out of joint, insisted on being called Admiral. Uh, Would we'll always talk about, you know, things being ship-shaped. Uh, and, and fired, uh, just in just under two years, fired 800 staff. And he did this in the most cold blood, cold-blooded manner possible. It was just sort of two-sentence pink slips being issued to staff saying, clear your desk out by 5 p.m., thank you very much, you're on your way. You know, a ghastly slur for people who served their country with devo- devotion in most cases for, for, for decades. And he bled needlessly for that. You know, he suffered unbelievable amounts of resistance from disgruntled in- intelligence officers. You know, they leaked in their droves. Um, they, some even considered taking a lawsuit out against Turner. Imagine that, CIA officers thinking about taking a lawsuit out against their boss. So Turner's a great case, you know, of of great vision, bad strategy. And, and the bad strategy was in part, I think, because as an outsider, he didn't get the culture. Uh, and, you know, we'll throw it out there. One of the other themes is you know a lot of outsiders come in and they they want to change the culture of an intelligence agency which isn't necessarily a bad thing but before they do that they have to at least be seen to respect that culture and acknowledge that you know in the past hitherto that culture has worked we'll be right back after this
3: So
1: Mark your previous answer actually focused on the CIA director's importance kind of looking up. Mm-hmm. Right? At, at his or her bosses. Right. And that was kind of the key component of a successful CIA director is someone that can work with the president and work with Congress. Chris, you just kind of focus on looking down. Mm. Like understanding how the culture of CIA matters and being able to work with people in the age. So I would argue that you're arguing with each other. That there, there is a disconnect here. Mm. And so, let me let me force you to kind of reconcile this a little bit. Maybe the answer is both matter, but- Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. we agree. We, we agree. We, we're not putting weight on, on either- uh, ice But ice I mean, mean it's, so uh, clearly, Turner was handpicked basically by Jimmy Carter, had a great mm. relationship from the Navy days, right? They were, I think, classmates. That's it. Yeah. Right? So, there obviously was a great working up relationship, but a horrendous working down relationship. Mm. Mm. And then someone, perhaps, who doesn't get along all that well with the president, well, Dick Helms is a great example, right? He's a CIA lifer, right? They love him there. Well, Um, yes. But both were seen as somewhat failures. so is there well that's a
3: yes. disconnect here no i I don't think there's a disconnect. I think what you've hit on is that that um being an intelligence chief being a spy chief is an extraordinarily difficult job, and the roads to failure are many, and the roads to success are few uh is is the way uh is the way i would i would uh I would look at that um which i guess gets back also in 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 sort of in a way to one of our other sort of initial questions is you know how powerful are these folks really yeah. and the answer is well obviously they're not trivial um, but uh, at the end of the day the the thing that really uh, uh, struck uh, struck us um is all of just the problems and the constraints and the friction and the pushback and the the just the how darn difficult uh, all these jobs are right um because you're you're you've got all sorts of all sorts of rivals and and it's just it's just a pain in the neck and it's all embedded within a democratic system where you know you're supposed to be held to account right um so yes uh you know, these, these people are powerful, but these are difficult jobs, and there are many, many, many ways to fail because you screw up any of these important relationships. And you are likely to be seen, and rightly so, as more of a failure than a success. And you screw up with two of them, and you're, you're, you're doomed, and, and it's very easy to screw them all up. Right. <laughs> and,
2: and, and, you know, different constituencies <clears throat> define success in very different terms. So, the, the, you know, the commander-in-chief might define what qualifies as a successful spy chief in a very different way to how the rank and file at, at the agency. I mean, Trump would be, would be a great example. So when he issued his his travel ban last year from predominantly, I think it was seven or eight um, Muslim countries in the Middle East, um, my understanding is that the, immigrated, the, the, the executive order, the, the travel ban, went out of the door before he actually had the intelligence in his hand to, to, to confirm whether there was a general, genuine security risk at, at, at play here, so he says to uh, he, he, he says to the head of the CIA at the time, "Look, my order's gone out the door. And now find me the intelligence. Right. Now find me the intelligence to prove me that I was right." So, if the CIA director then finds that intelligence for the president, in Trump's eyes, that CIA director is at success. But the CIA director's underlings at CIA might look at that and say, well, that's not success at all. Well, you, I, you've just you know, completely corrupted the intelligence process. Well, I think of finding the WMDs. Is, is, yeah, similar yeah. sort of
3: deal. Yeah. And, and I think there's a—and I know here we're mostly talking about the U.S. and the U.K., but just briefly to, 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 to think about some non-democratic states that are so important, you know, the, mm. much of the focus of Volume 2— The looking east and west, looking at your peers and looking at your subordinates is much less important to spy chiefs in non-democratic states in you know, military dictatorships or in communist countries. I mean, in those things, far and away—I mean, this is all still important, but far and away, Mm. the relationship that matters is um, your relationship to the Communist Party leadership or your relationship to the particular general who happens Mm. to be in the presidential palace. And everything else is of secondary importance. Whereas, thank God, in democratic states like ours, um, all sorts of other constituencies including congresses and parliaments that represent the people, and including the press, who in a different sort of way represent the people, are important um, you know, constituencies that need to be um, um, you know, uh, dealt with in a, in a more or less open sort of way, yeah, or at I least mean,
2: as open as possible. In, in, in African countries, um, actually being a very successful spy chief is quite literally damaging to your health because suddenly you perform so well in your job and you become a threat right. To the, politi- to the dictatorial political leadership of these countries. And there's been, you know, quite very, very bloody and very, very public uh, dismissals of, you know, very good, very well-functioning spy chiefs in, in certain African countries over the last 50 or 60 what years. We think of Beria and the Soviet Union, who oh, yeah. he, the only reason he
1: stayed on. alive was the, the atomic bomb and his ability to pull information from that. Um, I have to think I, I thought of another constituency that, that might mm-hmm. be important, especially for the U.S.-U.K. relationship, um, and that board was a relationship. I mean, the, the, the ability to get along with the other Five I members, the ability to yeah. get along with NATO and with uh, the other spy chiefs now, especially in 2018, seems to be a key consideration of someone who's successful. Uh, and in particularly, this is problematic. And I think the forward, maybe it was what Pat Hughes was talking about in the, the forward to the book, is the idea that in some cases, these might be people you operated against back in the yeah. day. Because enemies then become allies now, and kind of the ability to um, have that cooperation is so important nowadays to successful intelligence agencies.
3: Uh, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, for, for both the United States and for the United Kingdom, um, having, you know, liaison partners, uh, the intelligence services of other countries is tremendously important. And it's not—I mean, you know, we all know this, but I think in the public uh, realm, it's—it's it's, uh, maybe not as well understood as it should be because those are among the things um, that are, you know, never declassified, right? right. Because if if you know, two, two or more countries need mm-hmm. to sign off on the declassification, so that I don't think is nearly as well understood. But yeah, tending those relationships is absolutely important uh, as well. And there's a wonderful chapter uh, in the book uh, written by uh, Chris's colleague, uh, Richard Aldrich of, of Warwick, on um, NSA director uh, Bill Odom. Actually, he'd been head of Army Intelligence and then uh, and then became head of NSA and while he was at NSA um well he was kind of a bull in a china shop uh the uh, kind of a kind of a bully uh Uh, Richard's wonderful chapter title, as they call him, the intellectual redneck. Um, But one of his sort of most important uh, characteristics was that he was um, really awful in a lot of ways attending some of the most important uh, liaison relationships. Um, He, you know, uh, flat out considered the head of GCHQ at the time. You know, he just had no respect for the guy. Um, And that extraordinarily uh, important—this is in the 80s, right? This is a big deal. That extraordinarily important relationship um, suffered. Um, he um, he thought that France uh, was going to be um, a, a, a comparably important partner to uh, NSA and worked really hard to make that happen, and that never really came to fruition. Right? You know, may, maybe in the current era things are different, but back in the 80s that was this bad strategic choice. And he got you know made himself buddy buddy with um, thought his new best friend was going to be the incoming head of the uh, German BND, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, which is not only Germany's CIA, but also Germany's NSA. And the guy got himself, uh, you know, fired after a month on a, you know, security scandal and sort of left that relationship sort of hanging in midair. Yeah. And that those are those sort of screw ups in dealing with um, important foreign partners are among the things. I mean, it's a fairly long list in Odub's case, but among the things that lead him to be considered widely considered a a failed NSA director.
2: The the, 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 um, spy chiefs, Within the Five Eyes community, they'll often play a key role in in in, in smoothing relations over, uh, smoothing relations between these countries at the intelligence level. Um, are, are, are after you know bad calls by by their political leadership. So one example you, you mentioned Richard Aldrich here a moment ago, and I think his his research on the uh, the Kissinger Kitoff a uh, cut off I should say is highly appropriate here. So we're with seventy four seventy five. Um, Kissinger, U.S. Secretary of State, is 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 getting really annoyed uh, with the British Prime Minister uh, because, in his eyes, the British Prime Minister is cozying up a little bit too close to Brussels. Uh, is cozying up a little bit too close to the to the newly formed European Economic Community, and he sat there thinking, "Hey." You know, what, what what what's going on here? You know, it's, it's it's London and Washington, right? We need the special relationship. You know, stop getting in bed with the Europeans. So Kissinger, in a political move to teach the Brits a lesson, says to the head of the NSA, turn the tap off. Turn the tap off. We're going to teach these Brits a lesson. We're going to stop it. We're going to stop sharing intelligence with them. So suddenly the tap is turned off and the head of GCHQ rings up. I think it's, Is it Peter Mary Church? I forget now. The head of GCHQ rings up his counterpart, at NSA, and says, uh... Uh, what's going on here? We, we suddenly the world has gone dark, <laughs> and uh, actually, then it is it is incumbent upon the, the the NSA chief not only to try and reconvince you know Kissinger that he, he he's made a bad political call, but suddenly it's his job to smooth things over right. with, with with the British and doubtless the other three or four members of the Five Eyes communities.
1: I I wonder, I wonder how important it is to understand what makes some of these guys tick. Uh, is to understand their influences from other countries. I mean, you can't write a a, a decent biography of Bill Donovan without thinking about Bill Stevenson, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's Wild Bill and Little Bill because you don't get the OSS without the British bringing over their uh, their expertise from abroad. You know, you you look at... I, I can imagine if you're a brand-new CIA director and you your first phone call with a long-standing MI6 director, let's mm-hmm. say, you know, somebody who's been in the job for a couple of years, that's your only peer, right? Or maybe, you know, the head of DGSC or the head of the BND... Those are the only people who have done what you've done or you're going to be doing. They, to me, would be who I would ring up and be like, you know, kind of walk me through this a little bit. How much do we see that? I mean, the famous
3: one is Bill and Bill. But are there other instances where that pops up? Um, I don't know about specific incidents, instances, uh, but I I think your general intuition is correct, but I'd hypothesize, and I don't know, Chris may have more tangible thoughts here, but I'd hypothesize that that varies um, from agency to agency. Right. So somebody in NSA or GCHQ, uh, at least if they're ascended up through the ranks uh, uh, or have a background in SIGINT, are likely to have had, you know, recurring and probably uh, quite um, cordial and and cooperative relations with their partners in, you know, across the pond. Um, And probably to some degree, uh, CIA and and Britain's SIS or... So I always call it MI6, even though it's officially not its name, um, because they're both friendly and global espionage services. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily so true with, say, you know, somebody uh, rising to the head of Army Intelligence or the head of NGA or something, where the, where those liaison relationships are either not as broad or maybe where it's, you know, um, regional, right? Um, but I'm, I'm speculating
2: here. It's, not, it's I, frankly not something I thought about before. I think your proposition is, is, is absolutely sound. And I think- I think volume three. my right, right. chief. <laughs> volume three is, is, is getting bigger plus, and bigger. Yeah, the,
1: the subtitle is going to be like "What Vince would do <laughs> if he was CIA director."
2: <laughs> but I, I think I think what I would say is is I would draw your listeners' attention to, to Paul Madrell's um, chapter in volume two, where in, in addition to looking at a particular East German spy chief, offers some interesting uh, assessments of of spy chiefs across the Iron Curtain. And that, that's fascinating reading, you know, ha, ha, you know you've know, you got spy chiefs in, 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 in different Soviet satellite states, on the one hand, having to do their own thing, but at the same time, uh, please, the, the, the leadership from the, Moscow, that's right. tough. The yeah, East German tough.
1: Soviet example is a great one of these people like Markus Wolf and Erik Milka, who are now revered as, well, revered and or reviled as having this massive amount of power, certainly over their society, but they were always looking to moscow mm-hmm. you know for guidance
3: yeah, well, and it's an interesting point uh, too. Uh, n- now that you now that you put that out about the the Warsaw Pact, I mean, I can imagine. So the 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 Norwegian intelligence service, uh, gosh, 15, 20 years ago, almost now did a did one of these authorized histories, right, where they gave a historian access to the classified archives. And one of the things we learned was through much of the history of the Norwegian intelligence service, some enormous percentage of the of that service's budget, I want to say something like eighty or ninety percent actually came from the United States, because um, real the Norwegian intelligence service was joined at the hip with NSA. Um and I would have to imagine, I'm speculating here, but I would have to imagine that if you rise to the at least in that time, if you rose to be the head of the Norwegian Intelligence Service, you'd probably spend a whole lot of time hanging out with American counterparts, and you probably weren't gonna get that job um, right. unless you were on good terms with your American colleagues, and you'd probably learned a lot from them, and they from you too, but they had probably the Americans had probably very much influenced your your world worldview. But we do not have a chapter on Norway. Another thing for volume I know, man, three. Already, so I, we'll put you down here, even welcome. numbered chapters. You're welcome. I've written your
1: your volume three. Decide this conversation but let me ask you this question because both of you um deal with mark you deal with an area uh world war ii period plus the early cold war in your mm-hmm. particular chapter of this book and chris you have a lot of kind of your bat your past your your research study your background deals with pop culture mm. and the influence <laughs> of pop culture and so you've got the sexy period of world war ii <laughs> and the early cold war and you yourself your your, your interest is pop culture so i'm interested and did you have that in mind when you were putting this book together of the the pop cultural perception of these chiefs now that's my part a of my question sure. and then part b is how much were these chiefs themselves influenced by pop culture uh not just the books they read that were nonfiction, but you know dick helms well, it's 19, 1960s and 70s. So you've got Bond, you've got the Curray books, you've got all this stuff going back to the 30s and 40s. And, you know, whether it's uh, the 1950s and that time period, there's still some kind of spy pop culture, or at least the public perception of the G Men from the Hoover period and everything else. So, can you talk a little bit about that multifaceted question?
2: I, I think this is. James Tadderian is is the scholar political scientist who who works most in this area and he he talks about the so we, we're going to get very theoretical probably the only time I'm going to get theoretical in my academic career but he he talks about the the co-constituted nature of fiction and reality. He talks about the way that spy fact and spy fiction are 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 mutually constituted. Now what he means by that and this is still to be flushed out and properly explored. What he means by that is that um Spy fiction influences spy fact, but also spy fact influences spy fiction. So I think a lot of research has been done on how spy fact influences spy fiction. What that area of research is basically, you know, to what extent do do spy fiction authors draw on what's going on in, in the real world of espionage? And in the case of those spy authors who've been in the business like Le Carre and Fleming, you know, you, you can see that being the case. But the other question of how spy fiction has influenced spy fact is a really, really new and fertile area of, of possible inquiry. I mean, we know from your wonderful exhibition here in, 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 in DC, Exquisitely Evil on James Bond, we know that CIA Director Alan Dulles was absolutely fascinated and looked to draw inspiration from QBranch. He thought, Fleming, your Q-branch is wonderful, these poison-tipped dagger shoes, these homing beacons that we can put in an Aston Martin DB5. I think they're great, and I'm going to ask my CIA engineers to see if they can replicate this type of technology. You mentioned Helms and fiction. He, he's fascinated. So you would think that Helms would hate James Bond and love John le Carré. Actually, it was the opposite. Um... So I, I say you would think Helms thought that. Sorry, the uh, the beeping has confused me. Yeah. Because you think, okay, Helms is the intelligence professional right. personified. What what on earth is he going to like about um, you know cars flying off cliffs and you know cars going under the ocean and you know um, villains with dentures made out of steel? What on earth is Dick Helms going to like about this? But actually, Helms liked Bond because it was nevertheless. A representation of the intelligence business that he liked and he recognised. You know Bond. It's it's an agent saving the world, uh, doing a job with high risk and little reward. There's a clear line between the good guys and the bad guys in Bond. Whereas Le Carre, you would think um, you would you would think oh well, Helms would surely like Le Carre. You know it's more realistic, it's more gritty. But actually, he hated uh, Le Carre because in Le Carre, philosophically. It was just a representation of the intelligence business that Helms hated, because ideologically in Le Carre, the East and the West, the KGB and MI5 are the same, the different sides right. are the same grubby it's, coin. It's much grayer. Exactly.
3: Yeah. yeah and and pop culture. Uh, actually, I mean, the very first paragraph in the introduction of volume one is about is about pop culture, right? It's a it's 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 keying off of a scene in The Hunt for Red October, which we use to frame this notion that uh, spy chiefs are you know constantly operating in the shadows and manipulating stuff, and none. Of Us really realize it, right? It wasn't Um, Russians. Don't take a dump without a plan, son. No, (laughs) No, it was. uh, (laughs) It was uh, James Earl Jones. Is you know, and and I was never here. uh, <laughs> uh, now I forget where I was going with that. Oh, yes, yeah, so I was going to yeah. say, so one of the things also that I think is so interesting, we, so we've talked a good bit here about um, intelligence chiefs, spy chiefs having to be accountable to the public and being held to account for bad things that are done on their watch and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I find it fascinating um, that at the same time that the, the spy fiction uh, that's so popular um, is typically the sort of stuff that, you know— uh, most people in the voting public would be appalled if their intelligence agencies were actually doing. I mean, go look at James Bond, right? We see a, we see all this uproar, uh, you know, um, not unreasonably. I'm not staking out a, a position here in, in, in any way, but not unreasonably about you know uh, maltreatment of detainees and all this sort of thing. Well, Bond never takes detainees; he just shoots people in the head, right? He can't keep his pants zipped. He's buying champagne on the government dime, right? You know, it, it, yeah. this is fraud, waste, and abuse, and yeah. war crimes, and God only knows what in concentrated form, right, um, and the public loves it, but they don't really want that, right? Um, so I, I think that's an interesting phenomenon. So
1: let me, wrap, let me wrap up this conversation by asking you about sources, um, because um, you don't—we may not need a volume three, although we've already written it, because the influx of memoirs recently has been extraordinary. Uh, and, and I kind of—this point was drawn out a little bit by your chapter, Chris, talk, looking at— helms kind of almost starting that trend with cia help of writing the unofficial official history of his time there but basically you know not only every navy seal who went through buds has a book contract but it seems like (laughs) anyone who is a deputy director above at any major intelligence agency is writing a tell-all book about their time um as a spy chief uh do we know too much or are, are these even useful I mean, are they so whitewashed and so uh, CYA from my perspective that they they don't provide any real evidence for us to understand kind of what really made
2: them tick? I, I think that for me, the, the main disappointment about the intelligence memoir genre is, is, that, is, is the two-tier system that's in place. So it, there seems to be a system where directors, deputy directors, and... Um, Kind of really high-profile operations, people can can write books with near impunity. They can operate as if they're they're they're, they're, they're effectively above the law. They can say what they want. Uh, in a number of cases, they'll actually receive a lot of sort of you know private back-channel assistance from the agency and you know the agencies in question in terms of putting the books together. There'll be some ghostwriting and such forth. Was it Panetta who just said screw it? Yeah. Pu- yeah.
1: Without yeah. going through the peer, I thought it was taking too long, and just published it anyway. And yep. they're going kind to of retroactively. That's anyway, right. Yeah.
3: Can you right. can you imagine what would happen to somebody like me? If I right. And exactly. That, <laughs> that's where I was yeah. going.
2: And yet, the rank and file uh, are not given anywhere near as much freedom and latitude to um, to, to even write the the, 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 the mildest, the, the littlest of, of, right. of, of, of things and indiscretions to the extent where actually. A lot of the rank and file memoirs, just to go back to your earlier point, resemble resemble more spy fiction than spy fact, <laughs> because in their cases, that things like the publications review board will will will, ink, will get the authors to. To fictionalize so much of the narrative, uh, the changing of names, the changing of locations, the changing of almost everything right. <laughs> that actually these books read like works of fiction rather than memoirs so well, a couple of thoughts uh, on
3: this um, so first off, I mean memoirs are definitely important sources uh, for historians, but you have to you know sort of uh, realize that you know uh, uh, every memoir writer is the hero of his or her own book, and is sort of casting things that way, right? So, but as, as long as you take those sorts of uh, issues into account, and issues of memory and all that, they very useful when, particularly when you can triangulate with other uh, with other historical sources. Um, but I actually want to quibble a little bit with the premise of your question that I'm not sure that memoir writing for spy chiefs. Um, is So widespread at all, I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm open to counter arguments on this, but I see it actually very concentrated in a very narrow place. So it has become extremely common for CIA directors to write uh. memoirs. More of them do than don't, right? Um, <clears throat> sometimes after some delay, like Richard Helms, but more of them do than don't. Um, ditto FBI directors. There has been one NSA director who's written a memoir, Hayden, who, by the way, was also a CIA director. Um, Most American uh, intelligence chiefs don't write memoirs. It's extremely rare. It's not unheard of. Roger Hilsman, who headed state INR back in the early 60s, wrote a memoir. Okay, fine. But you have to look long and hard. And go over to Britain. No head of GCHQ has written a memoir. No head of MI6 has written a memoir. There have been two memoirs from the heads of MI5. One of them, Sir Percy Sillitoe, wrote uh, his memoir back in the 1950s. And the book said essentially nothing about MI5 at all, because they were pretending MI5 didn't exist at the time, so the censors wouldn't let him say anything. And the other one uh, was uh, Dame Stella Remington. Um, You know, and MI5 has been around for a century, well, more than a century now, right? So... I think it's in the U.S., not in the U.K., and I think it's in a very small number of agencies in the U.S., um, uh, not broadly in the U.S. So personally, I, I don't look out at, at there and, and, and get the impression, gosh, there's so many Spy Chief memoirs. I'm thinking, like, why aren't there more?
1: So the book itself is Spy Chiefs. It's a two-volume set. Uh, volume 1 deals specifically with the United States and the United Kingdom, and then Volume 2 goes all over the world. And uh, chronologically, is very varied from Renaissance Venice to modern day uh, lots of places. So uh, thank you so much, Mark Stout, Chris Moran, for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Vince. Thank you.
0: Hey, listeners. and share your feedback now.